I'm Don Lehman. Our guests today are the two co-founders of Studio Neat, Dan Provost and Tom Gerhardt. Their design for an iPhone camera mount called Glyph was the very first product design project to launch on Kickstarter way back in 2010. Since then, they have launched two other projects, Cosmonaut, a wide grip iPad stylus, and Simple Bracket, an easy to use iPhone app for filling out March Madness tournament brackets. Now they're back with a new project called the Neat Ice Kit, which is designed to help you easily make clear ice for cocktails at home. If there's a theme to their work, it's this. Smart, simple, and successful. Stay tuned. So, Tom, you're in Brooklyn. Yes, I'm in Brooklyn, and Dan is down in Austin, Texas. We, it's funny, kind of for our whole history of being like a company, we've always been moving around. Like right after we started in uh, 2010, like late 2010, uh, the spring of 2011, I moved to North Carolina for like a year while Dan was here. And then when I moved back up to New York about a year ago, he went down to Austin a couple months later. So we're just kind of moving around all the time. Wow. So how do you guys work? I mean, I guess you've been doing it the whole time, though. So how do you work uh, separately? Um, we're just, you know, we're kind of, we both have like home offices and we just do a lot of, you know, FaceTime video chatting basically throughout the day. So, you know, if I have a question, I just like text Dan chat question mark and he says, sure. And then he like FaceTime calls me and we just like chat for a second. So that actually works pretty well. Um, we always have kind of contemplated getting like a studio space or something, but yeah. I, we, I think we would actually kind of distract each other a little bit maybe. So, um, yeah. it kind of works out, uh. So, yeah, it's good. Good to see it. So I want to do something a little different because a, about a week ago, you guys, uh, you were on Mike Hurley's show over at 5x5, Five Five, which was really good. And mm -hmm. you went into your history as friends and as a company and, um, you know, the fact you guys use Kickstarter and some of the stuff you've made. So I was thinking instead of uh, re-asking those same questions, which were great, it's like, why don't we just make this a part two or like a sequel? And, okay. and build on that. So we'll do like, it's like um, a sequel, but from like a different TV show. Like, I don't know if anyone's ever actually done that before. But crossover. We'll, crossover, yeah. So we'll, we'll do that. Um, okay. Okay, cool. cool. So we'll put the link to your, that interview on the show notes so people can listen to that. But this will stand on its own too. I don't think people are going to feel lost by any means. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, but before we do that, um, so people kind of feel caught up and they don't feel like they missed too much. Let's do a quick one minute recap, kind of like the recap you'd see in front of uh, like a Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad, <laughs> where uh, just uh, give me the elevator pitch for who you guys are, what Studio Need is, and uh, what you guys have done together. Okay, go Dan. Sure, I can do that. Uh, so uh, Studio Need is just the two of us. I'm Dan and the other guy is Tom. And uh, we went to college together. We were friends. Uh, then we moved to New York and had an idea for a, a side project while we were uh, working as designers full time. Um, so we made the Glyph, which was a tripod mount. That was our first Kickstarter project. It vastly surpassed, surpassed our expectations. Um, six months later, we did our second Kickstarter for the Cosmonaut, which was a wide grip stylus. Um, and then since then, we've just been working full time, uh, basically making products and it's, uh, stayed just the two of us and we kind of, we kind of like it that way. Uh, so we intentionally kind of designed our business to be able to operate with, uh, just the two of us spending the bulk of our time designing things. Um, and then I guess most recently, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we launched our latest Kickstarter project, which is a kind of change of direction for us. It's still hardware design, but it's called the Neat Ice Kit, and it's basically a, a, a kit for making a variety of different ice types for cocktails at home. And so that's kind of our latest thing. Yeah, that did the job. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, so I, I want to talk a little bit about the fact that you kind of, you guys do so much, so many different things. Uh, you've done hard goods, you've done apps, you've written a book. I mean, obviously you do these videos for your 
uh, Kickstarter campaigns. Where, what field does your training come from? Uh, well, so um, Dan and I actually went to the exact same uh, like undergraduate uh, program, and it was in environmental design. It's kind of like in the College of Architecture at Texas A&M. Um, we kind of had a little bit different uh, paths. That was kind of the more traditional architecture, and Dan was a little bit more like kind of the like it's called like viz. So it's like more um, kind of media based uh, design. But basically, you know, we kind of had a pretty well-rounded undergraduate design education. Um, and then we both went to uh, graduate school in design and technology programs in New York uh, for grad school. And so I was at uh, NYU's ITP program and Dan was at uh, Parsons. And uh, so, you know, I think we both just kind of had a general design technology training Um and, you know, I kind of had some background in programming and Dan has a little bit more background in like film editing and some media production. And we both always kind of had like an interest and kind of a hobby of making like physical things and making things, but no real formal training. So we don't have, you know, formal industrial design training. It's kind of we only really have like a formal just general design training, which I think has really served us well, actually. Sure. Sure. So what do you, I mean, if you thought about, you know, what you put on your business cards, like what would you say you're, you are? Designer. Uh, yeah, you, I think designer. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, yeah. It's kind of a shame that I don't think the public really knows what that word means. Like I, I think like the fashion industry has, has kind of co-opted that term, um, yeah. unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I, that's how we definitely, we call ourselves. We say we're designers and, um, you know, I think the story that at least I tell myself and I'm imagining it's similar for Dan where we're just, you know, we we're good at solving a problem and kind of making decisions towards like a design intention or like a specific outcome. And sometimes those decisions are about like product and sometimes they're about aesthetics and sometimes they're about kind of. Uh, a feeling or um, like a user experience, but it's kind of about having this, you know, clear vision and, and trying to make decisions that like, get there, uh, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So how have you figured out your roles in the company or do you have separate roles? So it's like, you know, is one of you the CEO? Is one of you the head of customer service? Like how, do you, how have you kind of figured that out? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, I don't actually know how we figured out our roles, but they fell into place really naturally. So I think we're really lucky in that regard and that I think we have pretty complementary kind of skills or interests. Um, so things have kind of separated out pretty, pretty nicely. So the, the, I guess the easy way to think of it is kind of more of like a front end back-end uh, differentiation. Mm. So Tom is, uh, like, for example, the only one that touches the uh, the code whenever we're making an app. Um, so there's a very clear separation when we're doing that. And and I'm doing the bulk of the, of the UI design. So that's like an easy one where there's a clear separation. Um, but then for the hardware stuff, like, again, Tom is very much more on the the side of the manufacturing, like doing the 3D models and actually making it a real thing. And so, and then I, you know, I, I handle more of the customer service and I'm, you know, making the videos and kind of coming up with kind of, you know, marketing copy and, and things like that. So it just kind of happened to naturally split in a, in a really nice way that's that works well for us. Yeah. Yeah, we kind of, I think it's like we, it's funny because we both kind of touch everything um, and we, you know, whenever there's a big decision, we make it together like all the time and we're, we're lucky because we almost always agree except for like names sometimes or something. <laughs> but, um, but again, it's kind of like being like the chief of, you know, or like I'm the vice president of, or Dan's the vice president of customer service. And it's, but it, but it, it's really nice to have those buckets and like a clear differentiation because, we know when we come up with like a list of to-dos, who's doing what basically, right? Um, and so it's really nice. And I think that's partially why Dan and I can work remotely because we we just know what's on our plate without having to do a lot of communication. 
you know? Um, and I think that, I think we are, I agree with Dan, we're like super lucky. I think that, that we kind of have those roles figured out, but I think it really does enable us to work remotely or else otherwise it would be, we'd be stepping on each other's toes all the time and it'd probably be pretty difficult. Yeah. What are some of the good battles you've had over product names? Oh, uh, well, we made this app called Framographer, which is like a stop motion time lapse um, app. And we made the awesome rookie mistake of choosing the name Frames at first and even launching it without doing a trademark search. Um, and so we got a... I totally like, forgot about that. Yeah. yeah, like a cease and desist kind of. And so we had to quickly change the name. And that, I think, was probably the most we'd thought about something. We, we ended up landing on Framographer. Um but I think, you know, that kind of thing. Um, what else have we thought about, Dan? I don't, yeah, I mean, that was, that was the big battle I, that, came, that comes to mind. I think it's always just fussy little details. I mean, not, not that the name of the app is a detail, but you, like you said, usually big decisions were pretty much totally aligned. And it's just like the fussy things that were we're real uh, a-holes about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we, we've learned to hire... Um, graphic designers, because uh, a lot of times we'll do graphic design, but but it it goes way faster and smoother if we hire someone to do it, and it, you, it turns out better. Um, and so that's somewhere where we end up used to fight like a lot, not a fight, but just like you know, kind of fuss about these details and having hiring someone to come in and and we kind of like art direct, and they kind of um, you show us like some options. We're like, Oh, that one. And we almost always agree on the option. So if someone else is hashing out the details, it, it, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys think you have an aesthetic, but is there a studio? You, there's definitely like a, a studio neat feel, but mm-hmm. I mean, I guess you've only created a few, uh, pieces of hardware, a few pieces of software. Do you think that there's like a, an aesthetic red thread tying through those things? That's uh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I don't know about aesthetic, but uh, I know simplicity is a definite kind of design tenet that we gravitate uh, towards very much so and kind of always on our minds and always trying to pare things down and figure out how to, how to make the kind of most simple iteration of whatever we're working on. Um, but in terms of like a, a, you know, an aesthetic... I don't know. That's that's a trickier. It's tricky. But yeah. I, I, the reason I yeah. ask is because I, I, you know, I guess I don't really know. But there's always it feels they all feel very tied together. Even though you know one thing might be a thing that props up your iPhone, the other thing might be like an ice maker. You know, they still feel the same. And so mm-hmm. I was one. And maybe it's just that philosophy you guys have of of simplicity. Yeah, I think there's something like we would never make something out of velvet. Probably, and we would never make something. Write it down. They're with never Chrome, yeah, yeah, the famous last words. But I, I think there is something to do with maybe some like honesty of materials uh, stuff and like matte. Uh, I mean, you know, it's not like we ever really think about that or say that, but we definitely have. I think some of those tendencies, and um, yeah, I think they come through. But yeah, that is a tricky thing to say. I mean, I think partially we don't necessarily try to make things harmonious it's not like we're saying oh we're designing this new thing and it's got to feel like the glyph but i think just the fact that we have basically complete control over what we're making what we like just you know ends up coming through um and so it it is kind of convenient that we don't have to like work to make a product line um but it is nice to hear that things kind of feel the same i mean that feels good uh to hear that yeah how have you guys thought about creating new product lines because you know i mean i think your first couple products you know the glyph was this iphone kind of kickstand phone mount thing and and then you had the cosmonaut which was a a capacitive stylus for the ipad or for iphone and it's so and then you had some ios apps and so there was sort of a a theme building there but then you had like the simple bracket which i guess was still like an ios app but it was like a sport theme thing. So it felt a little different. And then you, now you've got the ice. So like what kind of drives your, your thought process when you're going to, when you start a new project or if you decide to work on that? Yeah, I think it's always just what interests us and what 
kind of problems we have in our own lives that we think would be fun or interesting to solve. So it was almost kind of a coincidence that all the first things we were working on just happened to kind of fall in the Apple ecosystem. Just that's kind of where we were and, and what we we're interested in. So I can totally see how that started to uh, form a, uh, a path of like, oh, this is kind of what these guys do. But I don't know. I personally get a, a lot of enjoyment of just kind of throwing a curveball in there or, or mixing things up and just kind of following whatever interests us rather than feeling like we're kind of pigeonholed in this certain uh, product type. Yeah, I agree. It's, um, it's funny. I, I mean, we just kind of do yeah what we think feels right. Now, I mean, it's definitely a plus, though, when we can say, oh, we're going to make this framographer stop motion app and, you know, it's really great because it works with the glyph. Like, the glyph improves the app and the app improves the glyph, right? And so we love being able to kind of have a set of things that work together, um, but I don't think we ever let that limit us. Um, we're never like afraid to just go somewhere else if we feel like that. If, if we feel like it's going to be great, basically. Yeah. So you've got this new campaign out on Kickstarter, which has already been massively funded. Uh, it's the Neat Ice Kit, and I want to talk about that. But I think uh, first, uh, I love the way you guys design your campaigns um, specifically for Kickstarter. And I think that that's really important because a lot of people, I think they think about the project, you know, the actual thing they're making, and then the Kickstarter parts just sort of the, you know, it's almost like a blog post telling people about it, but you guys have like designed that campaign, or it seems like you designed those campaigns. So. Um, like, for example, like when a lot of people create their um, campaign, one of the first things they do is they'll create all these pledge tiers and they have like a one dollar pledge level and then maybe like a ten dollar level where they send you some thank you card and maybe some stickers or something. And then maybe they'll create a couple more levels. And then and then then they finally have the level where you can actually get the thing that they're like the whole point of the project. And then they have got like a few more levels after that. And then maybe you get like, you know, the gold version of that or like maybe a, a custom book. And you guys have done the opposite. So talk about the choice to have only two pledge levels for the neat ice kit. Yeah, I think that's uh, that is kind of an interesting thing. It, it's just, a, I guess, a trend that we've noticed. Um, so when we launched the glyph which was our first campaign back in 2010 uh we did have a few tiers so we had you know the i think it was a one dollar tier or a ten dollar tier that was like you know just support the project you won't get anything but you'll be helping us out and then we had the actual you know quote-unquote pre-order tier and then there was a higher one where you get a prototype as well and then there was a really high one that was like you know we'll take you out to dinner um, and so that was kind of the, uh, the prevailing wisdom at the time was you want to have a variety of, of ways for people to support you at various denominations and the quote unquote real one is kind of in the middle, right. uh, somewhere. Right. And that seems, it's still the prevailing way, really. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is still true and good for maybe every project type except uh, products, like pr physical hardware products. So like for a film or something, I think that makes a lot of sense. Like, you know, kick in a few bucks if you just want to see this movie made. You know, kick in mo more money if you want to have like a digital download. You kick in $10,000 if you want to be an executive producer. Like things like, I think that makes sense. And the whole like t-shirts and things like that makes much more sense for those type of projects. But I found whenever I was seeing like a product that I thought was cool on Kickstarter, it was hard to figure out how to back it to, to get the thing. And I know there's this whole thing like Kickstarter is not a store and we both totally agree with that philosophy, but it, there was just so much kind of confusion and lack of clarity in terms of how you're supposed to support the project. Um, so I guess just for the neat ice kit, we just really wanted to simplify and make it dead uh, obvious how to back the project. 
And I think the other thing to note there is we've also learned after, you know, this is our fourth Kickstarter campaign that the 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 extra little tiers, the kind of like meta parts about your project can kind of end up just getting in the way um, when you're trying to then make the thing after you have your funding. Um, and so, you know, we we could have kind of had a lot of other accessories or T-shirts and all these things. And we kind of talked about some of that. But at the end of the day, we knew that it would be a pretty big distraction um, for us to kind of get the first, you know, to get the actual like, you know, project out there. So, I mean, that, that's always kind of in the back of our head, like, oh, this would be great. But what is it going to do, you know, to us realistically down the road? Because we know we have such kind of few resources because it's just the two of us. So we always have to be really careful what we kind of commit to. So I think that's the other side of the coin is not only is it kind of simple, like a simple story to tell for um, uh, for like the backer, for the Kickstarter backer, but it's also, you know, it makes it really simpler for us to have fo- focus uh, on the other side of things. Totally, totally. No, I, I think that's, it's super smart just for those those two reasons there. So you guys are funded now and a lot of creators will have these things called stretch goals, which are like, a di- like so say for example, you know, our goal was $30,000, but if we hit $50,000, we'll throw in this thing, right? And uh, so your neat ice kit now has all the funding it needs. Uh, are you thinking of having stretch goals? And by the way, I already know your answer, but I want to <laughs> ask it anyway. Uh, no. So we are, uh, our current plan is to not offer any stretch goals. And that was... Um, we kind of had that feeling before we launched. Um, but then, uh, Kickstarter, actually we, we were pointed to a a Kickstarter blog post that was called think before you stretch, I think. And it was just, I believe it was written by, uh, Yancey and he was just offering a counter argument to, uh, stretch goals. And he wasn't Mm -hmm. saying, you know, we don't support these, you know, he wasn't explicitly saying don't do this, but it was basically a, a tread lightly message. And I, I think it was really smart. It was basically saying kind of what Tom was saying previously about the multiple tiers is you're just introducing more distraction that can get in the way of delivering a great version of the thing you originally promised. So we just don't want to fall into that trap. So we just decided to not do that. Yeah. Yeah, it's so crazy because it's it's. I think people totally uh, – underestimate how much of an uphill climb it is to get something mass produced and to like yeah. add these additional things. Like, I, I don't know who, how stretch goals even came in to happen. <laughs> it's like, they just sort of happened, Yeah. but it's uh it's, a, it's such a weird phenomenon because now like backers, you know, I think I saw the comments of one of, uh, of your current project is that someone's like, so what's the stretch goals, you know? And yeah. you're like, no, guys, that's that's not how we do it. We don't got none. <laughs> we don't got none. Um, so, yeah, it's such a – yeah, people should just totally avoid that at all costs. I mean, uh, my, my guess is that – and this is just a guess, but my guess is that, you know, if people are – they're running a Kickstarter campaign and they feel like they got to keep pumping that gas to get all <laughs> yeah. the money they can out of the campaign. And I think um, the lesson there I think that we've learned is to have faith that – if it works on Kickstarter, it works because people actually want the thing. And it's far better to make sure that you give them what you kind of promised them and that you make it a good experience. And then, you know, you can keep going later. Um, and so, I, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the thing we just kind of keep preaching is, you know, make sure you tell you you give, you know, all your backers the right expectations and, and try to don't overpromise, even though it's so exciting and things are kind of rolling and you want them to keep rolling. Um, you know, soon it's going to stop rolling at the end of the campaign and you're going to have a lot of stuff to do. And so I think we just learned through experience that you got to be careful what you promise. Yeah, totally. And that, that builds right into my next question, which is the estimated delivery date you guys have for, uh, the ice kit, which is much longer than, you know, a lot of the other, you know, the, and, and, you know, and all the pledge levels, they have this little estimated delivery date saying, you know, you will get this approximately by, you know. October 2013, right? 
and you guys have given yourselves a pretty comfortable, well, it might, it's actually probably not that comfortable if you really think about it. I mean, to get, to get it done by then is going to be still a challenge, but it's a much more realistic than a lot uh, that I've seen talk about that. And were you nervous at all about putting such a long delivery date on? Uh, yeah, so that, that again was just purely based on experience, uh, specifically with the cosmonaut, um, campaign where we got bitten a little bit because we were over promising. We didn't even think we were over promising at the time. Uh, we were actually took our experience from the glyph, which happened insanely fast. Like that was, we just really lucked out and how smoothly that went, that we took that timeline and kind of just added, you know, we kind of doubled it or just added a couple months and thought, you know, naively, oh, surely that's enough time. Um, but it ended up like most manufacturing projects, you know, having hiccups and things not working how we thought and having to coordinate all these different vendors. So we basically learned from that, that, you know, these things take time and problems are going to arise and, uh, you just need to be prepared for that. So we just wanted to put a very conservative date out there with, the hopes that we would uh, underpromise and overdeliver, but uh, that's a date that we are comfortable with hitting, even with factoring in all these things that we know will come up. Yeah, yeah. Just a total sidebar. I think we were both, you know, because I was doing a stylus the same time you guys were doing a stylus, mm-hmm. and I think we were both hitting the same wall, wall, <laughs> and like, you know. And the the only thing that made me feel good is I knew you guys were going through it too because it was just <laughs> that that the uh, yeah I mean, we 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 know it was kind of the difficult part of that project but it's just yeah. uh yeah those the estimated delivery date you should always give yourself more time than you think because it's just otherwise you're just going to shoot yourself in the foot because this stuff just takes way too long yeah um, glacial speeds glacial speeds yeah you have to be totally fine with everything moving. Not at Amazon speed, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let's talk about the project. Um, I think you guys have like this direct access to my brain because you, <laughs> you do these projects that are things that I've either been in the process of making, uh, have thought about making, or have like a really big passion for. And the neat ice kit is definitely something I have a passion for because I really love making. Uh, these crazy cocktails at home. I love going to like these cocktail bars um, and like kind of, you know, trying to decode what the bartenders are doing. So this is like totally my wheelhouse. <laughs> um, and at, we, you know, we just had Martin Kastner on this week, who's the guy who does all of the uh, design uh, work for Aviary in Chicago, which is this really experimental um, cocktail place. I don't know if you guys have heard of it or been there, but you should totally go mm-hmm. there next time you're in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So we kind of got like a, a cocktail theme going on in the past two episodes. <laughs> um, so talk a little bit about how this uh, project started. Well, uh, we are very similar to you, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's it kind of started as just Dan and I both just really kind of getting into cocktails. I mean, I think a lot of you know, males in their early 30s or late 20s are also into cocktails right now. It's just very kind of zeitgeist. Yeah, uh, we're the demographic. That's right. We're we, the demographic. We grow, we grow beards, live in uh, bougie neighborhoods, and and drink cocktails. Make yeah. people invest. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so you know, we just were really into it. Like you know, just not super into it, but just liked it and and liked the process of it. Um, and one of the things which we had seen after going to, you know, fancy cocktail bars in New York and San Francisco was kind of this clear ice thing. And um, it was just really fun and pretty. Yeah. And and it, it was kind of a, a hole that existed. We were like, well, you know, why can't you do this at home or what would it take? And so we started doing the research and looking into it. Um, and, you know, there were some people online talking about it and like how you would approach it. Um but it was all kind of very science experimenty for a long time for us. We were just kind of like, oh, well, maybe this will work and maybe this will work. Um, and I think it just, you know, we were developing it and we were thinking it could be a product. Um, and just kind of, you know, really enjoying the kind of process and being fussy about something like that um, and enjoying the science kind of. And then once it kind of started to turn into 
like a story or more of a process or a kit, we were like, okay, this is really feeling great. Um, and, you know, it's really just, I mean, like kind of everything we do, it just came from a place of something that we are interested in. And we were kind of getting hints that a lot of people kind of in our world or kind of um, our, maybe our current customers were kind of inter- interested in cocktails too. So we we're like, ah, oh, maybe, maybe this will work out. Um, and, you know, we, obviously we had no idea if that was true until this Kickstarter campaign. And it seems to be uh, that that is the case. So, um, so luckily those nine months were not wasted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what are your, what are some of your favorite cocktails? Hmm. Or what do you, what do you, what's your go-to cocktail on like Thursday night and you're at my, home? You go my, first, Dan. Yeah. I mean, mine is usually just an old fashioned. Nice. Uh, that's probably what I have yeah. more than anything else. So Same. yeah, my go-to. How, how do you make your old fashioned? Uh, so I, I keep mixing it up, uh, trying to find the perfect, uh, my kind of perfect recipe and I'm, I'm still tweaking, but yeah. basically so using the neat ice kit, of course, of course. Uh, <laughs> I put, I chop the brick in half, the ice brick, and I put the cloudy half into a, I don't have a mixing glass. So I'm basically just using a shaker, mm. uh, like the bottom half of a shaker. Mm. Uh, and then I put, uh, two dashes of bitters, which, uh, I have a few different kinds, but typically I'll just go to the kind of default um, Angostura bitters. Yeah. Uh, and then I made a simple syrup, uh, that is, I'm forgetting the sugar type. It's like a raw sugar. Uh, is is it the one with the, with the parrot on the front? Uh, I'm not sure. I think I got like a Whole Foods brand one. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. so I, I made a, a simple syrup and then I, I, I stopped even measuring that when I pour it in cause I put such a small amount that I just kind of drop a little bit in. Um, and then two ounces of bourbon, uh, and I'm, that's usually either four roses or Buffalo trace or maker's mark, kind of just whatever I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then stir that up a bunch so it gets nice and cold and dilutes a little bit. Um, and then just pour that in a rocks glass, uh, over the clear half of the ice brick and, and that's yeah. it. That's interesting. Cause that's, I mean, I don't use a mixing glass at all and I'm kind of embarrassed to say how I, uh, where I got my old fashioned technique from, but I actually got it from watching a video that Rachel Maddow did online. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she loves old fashions too and her method's like super great because it's like all you do is um and she and she's like really particular about it too so like i knew it was going to be good and it is really good but basically she'll take um she'll take a sugar cube and i and the kind i have is, is the one like i said with the parrot on the front i think it's like some french name like le perruche or i i don't remember exactly <laughs> and i may have just said a, a french swear word there i'm not really sure <laughs> but so you put the cube in the glass and then you 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 hit it with like a couple of hits of angostura and then like a, a couple drops of water and then you muddle that and to get that basically creates a simple syrup and then you take like a peel of orange like just like without like real small like without getting any of the the white stuff you just get the skin you put that in there and then you muddle that into the simple syrup then you do your uh whiskey you mix that up and then you put in the ice and mix that until it gets cold and then then you drink mm-hmm. well i'm the lark i um to, to keep talking about old fashions um uh, <laughs> yeah i do orange bitters with rye whiskey, uh, old overhauls, and then I do a, like a lemon zest on top. So I know I'm a I'm a real charlatan, but uh, <laughs> that's the way I roll. Yeah, yeah. But it's good. It's funny. I've recently been really enjoying whiskey sours. I've yeah, kind of my tune. Um, and I those are really nice. Um, I really like them. So do you use a little a, egg white action? That's what I was just going to ask. You use the egg white because that totally makes that drink. It does. Yeah, it completely changes it. And uh, the good thing about a whiskey sour, by the way, if you're if you're not going to a, like a fancy cocktail bar, a whiskey sour is pretty hard to screw up. The only way you can screw it up is if you don't use lemon juice. But if you just ask the bartender, do you guys use fresh lemon juice in your whiskey sours? And they say yes, you're good to go. 
Yeah, that's the that's the question you should ask any bartender. Are you using fresh lemon juice? And then if they're not, you just leave. Yeah, right. Yeah, order beer or something. Yeah, yeah. it's a real yeah. shame. Yeah, you can be an an indignant, you know, cocktail <laughs> snob and go, ugh. And just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's kick you out for a minute and uh, talk a little bit about Apple. Okay. Because, uh, you know, I. I work by myself kind of like you guys do. And so I haven't had really anyone to really geek out about this stuff yet. So they had some new stuff on Tuesday. And uh, so it's the 5S, the, which is basically an updated version of the aluminum iPhone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then their brand new iPhone is this 5C, which is a plastic iPhone. Uh, and I've got a lot of thoughts on this stuff, but I would kind of want to know what you guys thought of, of the new phones. Hmm. You go, Dan. I'm, uh, I mean, I'm excited about the 5S, uh, that's for sure. Um, I think, yeah, I don't know what to offer in terms of like analysis, uh, because I don't really have any, uh, but I know that I'm generally usually pleased with what Apple announces when it seems like everyone else is just taking a dump on, oh, they didn't do this and this and this, so I'm really disappointed. Um, I think just things like making the camera better is like a huge improvement in the way people use that device and just the kind of normal everyday situations. I think the fingerprint scanner thing is huge, like you know, essentially never having to enter your iTunes password ever again on the phone. It seems like that would shave like years off your life of <laughs> typing that same password over and over again. Yeah. So I think I, I just love that they're they're focusing on these little points of friction that uh, they can eliminate. So so I'm totally on board uh, with the 5S. Um, and then in terms of the 5C, you know, I, I'm not necessarily personally interested in it, but I I see what they're doing and I think it's clever in that they put a new body on the exact same internal specs, more or less, and now it looks like a, a new phone. So they essentially have now a plastic MacBook uh, version of the iPhone. Um, right. So that's kind of interesting is they're, for the first time, they're, their iPhone lineup is diversified instead of just selling the previous year's model. Right, yeah, and I think there's a good like psychological barrier that clears for people then because... You know, if you go in and you're like, uh, I don't want to get the top of the line one because I want to spend that money. But it, the old one's just last year's phone, which is kind of like a weird thing, too. And then mm-hmm. also you can be like, oh, it's a, I get the new one. And it's just the, the cheap version of it. It's just really yeah. smart. Mm-hmm. It was and, so, you know, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, well, I, I think it's I mean, just like from a kind of a developer and design perspective, it's actually um, really nice to kind of have um to have that 5C be kind of the same as what, you know, the, the, the iPhone 5 is. Um, just because it's like, it makes it, it's kind of like a really nice known quantity. And you know that people are going to be super pumped about that phone, but it's also a really good phone. And mm-hmm. I think from a product perspective, it's super smart. I mean, I, I would say if, if I wasn't the nerdy kind of tech guy, feature guy that I am, I would be probably more excited about the 5C, honestly, um, than the 5S just because it's, I don't know, it's very bold, you know, it's like a very bold thing to have and um, combined with the cases that they're doing, I don't know, it just seems like a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. And so I'm, I'm glad that they're kind of going down that direction. Like I was looking at the Apple website for the first time today and, you know, they're, they're pushing all of the 5C stuff, um, you know, up front. And so, I, you know, I was seeing a lot of that and I was seeing a lot of the color. And then when you see the 5S, it's like, oh, this is serious town now. Or it's like, oh, this <laughs> right. is like, you know, um, a piece of jewelry, which is good because if you, you know, you really care about that and you want the nicest thing, it feels like the nicest thing. But for them, for a brand perspective, it, it's really nice that 5C. I think it's a good move for them. Um, and, you know, I've had uh, iOS 7 uh, for right after WWC. I immediately put it on my uh, all the time phone because I'm crazy. And um, I have to say that um, it's really good. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's kind of completely changing the paradigm of the way I think about designing um, interfaces. Um, 
and like building them. Yeah, in what way? Well, it's they really flipped it, and Dan and I kind of um, we're building an app right now that's kind of doing that. That's kind of using this philosophy, um, but really they flipped it. It's it's no longer about like so when Dan and I have been fussy about designing apps in the past, it's typically about. First, we designed some really fussy UI. Like we spend a lot of time worrying about, you know, this UI model and like user experience and how it works. But then all of the kind of graphic design side of things, it's all about making sure that like these textures are really good and these shadows are really good. And you spend all of this time kind of on the skin of the app um, and make sure it feels right. But now with this iOS 7 and kind of the tools that Apple has put into the kind of developer's toolkit, um, it's really about animation and motion and depth. Um, and so it actually feels a little bit foreign to really worry about the skin of things. And now it's more, okay, how does this button appear? How does it disappear? Like, how does this screen move? What should it feel like when this thing bounces? Um, and so yeah, it's, it's a lot really, more kinetic than uh, exactly. it used to be. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the organization of that, um, it's just like a lot more spatial kind of feeling. Um, and, and so it's really nice. And I think obviously we'll kind of, you know, things will move back to more of a textured feel, I'm, I'm guessing a little bit. But just having this time when it is okay to kind of um, let go of some of that texture stuff and focus on the kinetic aspects of things is really, I think it's really great. Uh, and it's really fun kind of from a design perspective. Um, and so I've been really enjoying that. And um, yeah, so it's, it's cool. Yeah. Well, yeah, one of the things I've been thinking about uh, with iOS seven, it, it kind of it's the end of like the first era of iOS, right? Because mm-hmm. it's going to this like really new UI uh, design language, and it's I mean it's really a philosophy change on on the way the UI should, you know, that kinetic energy sort of feel. And but what's what it's got me thinking about is like there's no such thing as antique software. <laughs> yeah. So like in. 20 years, I'm not like no one's really gonna be able to pick up iOS and just play with it for 10 minutes and remember it and reference it and kind of learn from it. And, you know, even though we're not gonna use it again, it's, it's, you know, like with, with hard goods, you can kind of, you know, like I can find like an old Polaroid land camera, you know, those old beautiful ones that would like fold flat and then like pop back up and like mm-hmm. analyze that and go, oh, how'd they do that? You know, I would just wonder if we're, you know, I mean, this isn't like a iOS 7 problem. This is just sort of like a software thing. So, like, I wonder, because you guys make software, too. I, I wonder, do you um, go, how do you go back and, like, reference old stuff and learn from it? I don't know, Dan. We don't really, do we? I mean, it's... Yeah, that that's a good question. Um, yeah, I would say... Generally, we probably don't. Uh, almost all of our software inspiration is stuff that's you know very current, just right. kind of like what we're using on our own phones and kind of what we're seeing these days. So, yeah, yeah I, I don't think, know. I may, I think it might be it's just too young. I mean, like I don't think I don't really know what I would learn from an interface from 1995 it, because it's so. Um, you think so? You think you wouldn't I learn don't anything? No, I mean, I feel like it's such a new art that yeah. almost everything has been improved. It's not that someone got it and then we forgot about it. I, my impression is that everything has been improved. Yeah. <laughs> um, and maybe that's not true, but I mean, like even if you look at, if you just visually look at things from, you know, the mid-90s, just the color of the screens, like what they can reproduce, you know, it's not like looking at an old Braun, you know, uh, record, you know, like a tape machine, right, from the 50s. Right. You know, they got it right, and it's going to look right for a long time. But I, I don't get that feeling from software, and I think we're just, it's just too young. Maybe yeah. uh, that's not true, but I don't know. Even Apple, who, you know, really cares about that stuff, if you look at, you know, OS X 9, or OS 9, you know, it's not great. <laughs> yeah. not great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there there is like a a, a nice quality that, you know, it's almost kind of like burn the whole forest to the ground and like grow a new one sort of thing yeah. with software. And so you know, it's really destructive, but at the same time, it's like kind of, it allows you to, you, know, you always have to be thinking super currently, which is kind of nice. Yeah, it's, and I just, I had a thought, I'm I'm not by any means a heavy uh, gamer, but you could probably uh, 
argue the opposite, where if you look at, you know, original Nintendo games and things like that, a lot of those games have held up very Mm -hmm. well. And uh, the original kind of Zelda games actually compare quite favorably to the newer Zelda games when you're talking about kind of gameplay and mechanics, you know, setting graphics aside. That's true. Uh, So that's interesting that games actually do age maybe in a more similar way to hardware, whereas kind of applicate non-game applications maybe don't. Yeah, I wonder if that's maybe that's just a function of the fact they've got, you know, the software is on a piece of hardware. Mm. You know what yeah, I mean? That's interesting. So yeah, it's yeah. like it's, it's frozen in context. Kind ex- of. Exactly. So it's like and you keep the console because like no one wants to throw out their old NES or at least no one our age wants to throw out their old NES. And, uh, you know, so you can preserve this stuff and open it up from time to time. Uh, I want to go back just a quick second to the uh, the 5S and the 5C because I wrote this thing on Gizmodo yesterday just talking about uh, the advantages that apple has in making the 5c out of plastic mm-hmm. and the overwhelming response in the comments which i don't know if you should ever really read the comments on any <laughs> website yeah. whatsoever but i just found it interesting was everyone was outraged over it being plastic oh interesting and i i wonder what you guys you know and i well hold on i'll back up i think part of it is that you know those specific commenters are just sort of like anti apple anything you say about apple even in a, like a neutral way is like seen as a positive thing. And so they're, yep. they're, they're reacting about that. But I'm, so I'm wondering what you guys think of plastic versus aluminum and maybe even deeper than that consumer versus uh, professional. Mm. And, and what it means to be unapologetically plastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really? Yeah. <laughs> what does it mean to be unapologetically plastic? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. Uh, I mean, so I've never, I, I've yet to hold an iPhone 5C in my hands, so I, I can't really judge one way or another. But I do think it's silly to just say, oh, it's plastic, it sucks. Like, yeah. <laughs> the, the feel of it matters then more than, you know, specifically what material is. So, you know, aluminum can be a beautiful choice, and it can also be a terrible choice. Uh, it just depends on, you know, how it's used. It sounds obvious to say that, but... Um, so yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of funny that plastic has always been, it seems like the easiest choice because the antennas have to escape, uh, the phone. So they've always kind of been battling it. Like with the original iPhone that was, had an aluminum back, but had that plastic portion, on the bottom to you know allow the antenna signals to escape and likewise with like iPod touches have a, or right. they used to have a little kind of plastic patch um so that it seems like they've always kind of been resisting and you know of course like the iPhone 3G and 3GS like did have the plastic back and they went away from it so i don't really have a uh have a take one way or another it's really just you know does it feel really nice in your hand that's kind of really all that matters yeah, and especially like all the nice stuff that Nokia has. I mean, like you know, Windows, you know, phone software aside, like their hardware has been pretty stunning. Like some mm-hmm. of those unibar mm-hmm. plastic thing, and in in some ways, it's kind of a better take on you know the the iPhone because it's like it's it's got that unibody philosophy, but it's plastic, so it's like you know when you scratch it, it's just more of the same color underneath. And uh, you don't have the same, you know, window issues where like, you know, on the 5S or the 5 and the 5S, you've got those little ceramic cutouts on the back. So you can allow Mm -hmm. the signal to go through and on the Nokia phones, it's like, it's like, well, the whole thing and you could put it anywhere. It doesn't, you don't need to like cut out a hole and put a different material in there just to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm totally on board that, you know, what super bothers me about the current iPhone and it will be the same for the 5S is, you know, when the patina starts to come and and, yes. and the finish wears off, yes, it makes it feel like a used object. And I'm sure the plastic will get some of that, but like not near as much. And so, oh yeah, I think, you know, I think if, if the color were different, they weren't so like high chroma colors, 
people wouldn't be reacting in the same way maybe, but um, mm. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I think it is kind of the natural material. So, I, you know, I think it's cool. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. Tom, you said something interesting like a second ago about, uh, I mean, you like the 5C, but you think you'd do S just because of the features. And I'm kind of like, I've always been the same way with Apple stuff and maybe just products in general is that I always kind of tend towards the, uh, I like the compromises that, that, that make in like a consumer version of it. But then I always come back to, man, wouldn't it be cool to have that uh, you know, that fingerprint scanner, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's like, cause I always wanted the, uh, you know, like the plastic MacBooks back when they were doing, you know, like the PowerBook G4 titanium, mm-hmm. like I was, well, okay. Maybe not the colorful ones, but like when they went like white, white, I, yeah. I thought those were like, beautiful. the black one was really, awesome. the black one was beautiful, but I was always like, it's going to be way too underpowered for what I need to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 There's something about that. I mean, I could tell you if this 5C was a rubberized plastic, like, you know, like a like a thermoplastic Vulcanzade or some, something like that, um, I would probably forego the 5S maybe. <laughs> I know I could get a case, but if it was like this kind of matte, colorful brick, uh, I would be really tempted. Um, I don't know. There's something about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'd like the 5C better just from an industrial design standpoint because it's just it's so much cleaner than the 5s for me like i just like the fact that it's just like it's just a piece of plastic pure. yeah it's pure it's just got the buttons and it's just and, if, and those buttons are way better like if you look at those buttons on the side yeah. i mean i don't know how they're gonna feel yeah. but it looks like a rendering and i and i was you know i was reading the the giz uh the sorry the verge live uh like live blog yeah and they kept referring to the images the photographs as renders and yeah. it's like, no, guys, those are photographs. Um, and do, so I think. Do you think so? Because I thought they were renders personally. But I think, uh, well, I've, I mean, unless Apple has changed their tune, I thought they had a policy where they don't use renders, yeah. and they do this crazy process of, they shoot, a really, really narrow depth of field, um, by, by with multiple focus points, and then they blend them all together in Photoshop. So the entire objects in focus, um, but they're all, it's all made up of photographs. I know that's what they use, how they used to do everything. And I imagine that's still the case, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's finish on the topic that everyone who's a designer loves talking about, talks about it all the time. And that's sports. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Uh, You guys, you guys strike me as the rare uh, creative types that like sports. And maybe that's just on, the uh, the simple bracket app that you did and uh, uh, by the way if you don't like sports which is I'm assuming 95% of you who are listening right now just go ahead and turn it off because this is we're just going to talk for the next five minutes about this so you can just ro- you can roll your eyes and go back to sketching or whatever you're doing so that's totally fine but anyway so um, like the the video you guys did for simple bracket was like mm-hmm. the perfect like blend of like old school like 80s Larry Bird esque basketball nostalgia uh so i'm wondering what teams you guys follow because it seemed you don't do that unless you know what the hell you're talking about you know what i mean so Mm -hmm. like are you are you guys sports fans who do you follow well uh i mean texas a&m has got a pretty big game uh coming up in uh in a couple days here so that's exciting um i'm actually kind of so i do i do just to rattle them off real quick for basketball it's uh san antonio spurs they were kind of the closest yeah. team to austin and are you I from did, texas originally uh no, yeah I, I grew up oh in you texas. both are yeah okay yeah and so uh the spurs uh very much align with my kind of attitudes of uh, kind of sportsmanship and how to play the game and how and how to act and stuff. Just like the methodical, fundamental uh, kind of way that you know Popovich coaches and you know Tim Duncan and all those guys represent. Um, yeah, they so are. They are kind of the apple of the NBA, if you really. Think yeah, about they it. are a little bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, 
football, it's usually the Packers. Um, whoa, whoa mom, how'd, that, how'd that happen? That's, <laughs> that's more random, but my mom, uh, she grew up in Wisconsin, um, so I kind of inherited that one. Um, but most of the other teams, uh, so actually I, I was a really big Bulls fan uh, in the 90s, as I'm sure nearly everyone was. Yeah, uh, you have to be. It's Jordan. But uh, I actually kind of ha- I've started to consider myself uh, to use a, a Chuck Klosterman uh, phrase, more of a, like a sports agnostic, where I'm finding I enjoy watching games more if I don't have a vested interest in uh, either of the teams playing, and I just can kind of follow it for the the drama of that game or the storylines that are happening, and it's a much more kind of stress free uh, viewing. Yeah. experience so i yes I, I do have you know a, a few teams that I, I root for but uh it's a lot of fun to just kind of follow it in a more agnostic way yeah yeah and i'm you know i'm a little bit more i've always been agnostic so i've never kind of had a team but i you know I've always how, how do you do like so you've always been that way how do you do that as a kid i don't know you know i i well I don't know. I just never was like, this is my team. I'm going to follow it forever. I think partially because I grew up in Colorado. Well, but it's funny because I was, when I was a kid, it was Elway and I was in Colorado. So I have no idea why I would, you know, I don't know. I was but, a little but bit you know what? You were You were at that right age because I think, so I grew up in Western New York. And so that means I'm like a Bills fan. And I grew up at the right age, which, yeah, everyone feels sorry for me. <laughs> um, uh, I grew up at the right age when um, the Bills were super good and would go to the Super Bowl every year. So, mm-hmm. like, and I, th- but I think because you were maybe a couple years removed from like Elway, like there was that yeah. weird span in there where like they lost a couple times, like the Broncos lost a couple times and then they didn't go for a while. Like, my brother was a couple years younger than me. And he was just like, screw this. I'm not going to hang out with these Super Bowl losers. I'm going to be a Chiefs fan for a couple of years. <laughs> and maybe you were just doing that to guard yourself. To- I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, it was never a huge thing. And it still isn't. So, you know, I always enjoy basically any sport to watch, except I don't watch baseball on TV, but I'll go to a game. Um, but, you know, I've always kind of been around it. I know the thing. I would say that Dan was kind of the impetus for Simple Bracket. Um Okay. But, you know, but college basketball is not foreign to me at all. Uh, it's just, you know, he was kind of like, let's do this. I was like, yeah, let's do this. It'll be cool. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, it's fun. And I think, I, well, the, I will say that my only real sports crush is was Tiger Woods. Because I started playing golf uh, right when he came onto the scene, like in the tour. And that was just like mind blowing. Yeah. Um, you know, being like a 14 year old or something and watching Tiger Woods. Uh, but then, you know, his fall from grace is kind of like, oh, well, I don't really want to watch golf anymore. So um, <laughs> that's kind of my only uh, guilty, guilty sports pleasure. I just wish he would have gone crazy. Like, I wish he would have just embraced the evilness and like wore black yeah. and just, you know, yeah. went for it. But not yeah. the case. He went wussy and, you know, I yeah. guess, you know, Getting treatment for your sexual <laughs> problems is wussy, but whatever. Yeah, yeah. I feel like LeBron and, and the Heat kind of embraced that their first yeah. season, where they were like, you know, Scarface to the NBA, and the, but then they became good again when they win. All you have to do is win, and then people think you're a nice person again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's not too bad. He's a hero. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, hey, cool. It's been great talking talking with you guys. Yeah. Likewise. And, uh, yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Cool. Uh. We'll just kind of blindly end it right there somewhere. I'll, I'll chop it. But, cool. but yeah, hey, thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. Well, that's our show for this week. Many thanks to Dan and Tom for being our guests today. You can see their work at studioneat.com. Also be sure to check out their Kickstarter campaign, The Neat Ice Kit, by going to kickstarter.com and searching for ice. You can subscribe to After School on iTunes. Just go to the iTunes store on your computer or the podcast app on your mobile device and search for Core 77 or After School. Also on Core 77, we include show notes that link you to all the stuff you heard us talking about with Dan and Tom. 
Remember how we said that this was the second part of an interview they did a week ago? You can find a link to that interview in our show notes. You can follow me and the After School Podcast on Twitter at After School. And you can follow Core77 on Twitter at Core77. After School's theme song is Introducing Today by Disco Lobos. I'm Don Lehman. Talk to you soon.